0: Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast about how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free and independent educational resource, you can support the podcast by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. As longtime listeners of this show know, a lot of love and labor go into making this thing, so every little bit adds up. You can also make a one-time donation at paypal.me wordsforgranted. Thanks to Daniel, Amelia, and Anton for their recent contributions. In this special interview episode, I speak with Tim Brooks, the founder of the Endangered Alphabets Project. Among other things, we talk about the importance of saving endangered writing systems, some of the causes for a writing system's endangerment, and Tim's current Kickstarter project, Ulu, Legends of the Nomads, which is a board game aimed at preserving and spreading awareness of the Mongolian script. You can find links to Tim's work, including this Kickstarter campaign, at wordsforgranted.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, I'm joined today by Tim Brooks. Tim, thank you for coming on to Words for Granted. My pleasure. So you are the founder of the Endangered Alphabets Project, Um, I think we can just kick things off by having you tell us a bit about this initiative at large.
1: Yes, the Endangered Alphabets project is a bit like a hedgehog. Um, It's impossible for me to um, talk about it um, briefly, partly because I'm a very wordy person, but also partly because it sticks out in all these different directions. Perhaps the best way of introducing it is by, by telling you how it all began. Would that be a good idea?
0: I think that's great. That's on my list of questions to ask you, so go for it.
1: <laughs> so in 2009, Christmas was approaching, uh, very much the time of year we're at now. And as usual, I had no money. And I grew up in England, uh, very poor, and so we always made Christmas presents, um, for family. And so I thought maybe I'll make Christmas presents this year. And my then wife, uh, who was a therapist said that she needed a sign for outside her office, like a shingle. And, um, so I thought, huh, I wonder if I could make one of those. And my mother had this great attitude, which was, you can do anything if you take a book out of the library. And of course, nowadays, that means, you know, you can do anything if you spend any time on YouTube. Um, And so I went to the local woodshop and um, I bought myself a little set of carving gouges and I started to carve. And while I was doing that, my older daughter happened by and said, oh, can you make me a sign as well? Because she was a senior at RISD. And she's very business minded, and she wanted to have a sign hanging over her table so it uh, stood out from all the other seniors' tables um, when they were doing their senior show. And then my younger daughter came by and said, Oh, I want a sign as well. She had no reason to have a sign whatsoever. And that was how I taught myself carving, which actually is where the Endangered Alphabets Project began. So that Christmas, I basically carved everybody I knew a sign, whether they wanted one or not, and discovered that I really liked it. And the feedback was actually um, positive. And, um, and then I stumbled across this website uh, called Omniglot.com, which was sort of an online encyclopedia of the world's writing systems. Um, and I was looking through this, and I was struck by several things. One was I'm a pretty well-traveled guy, and I had never heard of most of these, the languages or the scripts that they were written in. Um, And I kept on coming across, um, in the the brief description of them, no longer used for official purposes, no longer taught in schools, only used by uh, priests, only used by women to write secret love letters. And I thought I had no idea that writing systems, uh, at the time I called them alphabets, could be um, endangered. Everybody's heard of endangered languages, but nobody uh, that I'd heard of um, talked about endangered um, alphabets. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to carve a piece of text in a number of these scripts as a way of just kind of um, preserving it. And um, I had no idea what I was doing or how ambitious it was, but I I decided that I would carve part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in about a dozen of these different um, indigenous, minority, marginalized, rare writing systems. And um, it was one of the hardest things I had ever done in my life. And it, it, but it, I really got into the carving and I started researching. Um, but I was researching from an unusual perspective. Um, instead of thinking like a linguist, in other words, how does this language operate? How does this script operate? You know, what are its phonemes and all those other eem things that I don't really understand? I was asking myself these kind of writer carver questions, which was like, Why is this script so thin? Why is this script so mathematical um, and geometrical? And so I started um, asking questions that really nobody else was asking, such as those two questions and why was it endangered? Was anyone doing anything about it? And I discovered this was an entirely new field. Nobody was researching what is called script loss. And so that's how it all began. I did that exhibition, and to my amazement, people came up to me and they said two things. They said, one, this is art. And I, I really hadn't thought of it in those terms. I had thought of it as being kind of a, a preservation activity. And I don't think of myself as being an artist, you know, a musician, a writer, maybe, but this was different. And then the second thing they said was, this is really important. You've got to keep on doing this. And ever since then, um, I have been sort of growing the endangered alphabets in a number of different directions. Um, the carving carries on and I do exhibitions and I talk about the issues that are, that they bring up and the cultures that created those scripts. Um, I have done a whole variety of collaboration activities with people who are trying to save or revitalize their writing system and their culture. Um, I've created games, because if you really want to revitalize something, you've got to start with children. And if you want to start with children, you've got to create games for them. And it's become, even though it's still more or less like an operation by, you know, one person, one helper, one dog, Um, It's really, things are really going on now all over the world. Um, And at the moment, for example, I'm undertaking this really ambitious initiative to try and support the Mongolian people of Inner Mongolia, who are at risk of having their language um, essentially steamrolled over uh, by the Chinese government, as happened, um, you know, 50, 60 years ago with uh, Tibetan. Um, And so I've created a a board game as a way of introducing the Mongol culture and language and script to the world in in a fun way. So I'm always doing different things and um, living on a a sort of a shoestring, but I wouldn't have it any other way.
0: Yeah, that's that's an, an amazing an amazing series of stories. Um, and I definitely want to dedicate uh, the latter portion of this episode specifically to talking about your Kickstarter and this initiative for the Mongolian language. But let's let's back up a bit. And I just have some I have some questions about learning to write in some of these scripts, which are foreign to you. Um, I mean, when it comes to learning the strokes, are there resources out there for you to study, or is it just you know you're sort of looking at these characters these letters whatever they may be and you're thinking just you know what is the best way for me to carve them what is what is easy for me
1: that is a great question and it's one nobody has ever asked me um and maybe it's because you know you're an artist and musician and you're thinking about it from a different direction but yes um almost no linguists are actually wood carvers (laughs) And I'm certainly more of a woodcarver than I am a linguist. Um, and, uh, and the other thing to remember is that I don't speak any of these languages. And I can't read and write any of these languages. And I haven't been to most of the places where these, um, the languages are spoken and the scripts are used. So what happens is that um, the hardest part of all is the research, is actually finding somebody who is has some kind of online presence, who speaks English because, of course, like, an, you know, like a Brit or a member of the dominant culture, I don't speak any of the other languages that would be useful, um, and who can actually send me a piece of text to carve. And then uh, one of two things happens. Either I do my best to copy what I've been sent, or if I'm really feeling brave, Um, then instead of using, you know, carbon paper, I do stuff freehand and then the issue of, of stroke order and expressiveness becomes really, really interesting because one of the things that we don't realize, and this is one of the endangered alphabets truths that I've discovered is that the way we write is shaped by our culture, our culture's history, Our culture's history of ideas and technology, our own personal aesthetic and sense of what looks right, the physical structure of our body, and above all, and this is a subject we could spend a week talking about, our concept of beauty. So as soon as you try and make something beautiful, you try to do something which goes beyond the way linguists usually think about language, which is as something functional. And the way linguists think about writing is that it's just a means of recording sounds. And yet, when I talk to people who are from Bangladesh or from Indonesia or from Northeast India or um, all kinds of places, and I've tried to do a carving in their script, they say, thank you, for working with our beautiful script. And it's become more and more clear that our relationship with writing, and especially our relationship with our own culture's writing, and even our own personal writing, is extraordinarily deep and subtle. It's affected by a lot of different things, but it means that our connection that we feel with it is so strong that there are many places where... People are connected to their writing system, their culture's writing system, even if it's no longer used or if they can no longer read it or write it. That's how deep that relationship is.
0: Yeah, and I, I wonder, so so you're, you're talking about the connection between uh, aesthetics, beauty, and the the way a script is written. So now have you found answers to some of these cultural questions that you were asking that you raised earlier, where it's like, why is this script so thin or so thick or so mathematical? What are some of the correlations there that you have found between culture aesthetics and the actual way a script is written? Right. So before I get into that, I'll give you another musical analogy.
1: So, um i play guitar you're a drummer we both know lots of musicians right and we've both grown up listening to a variety of kinds of music um some of it originating nearby some of it originating a long way away so if we got a bunch of our friends together from all over the place and we said play a b then not only would you get the you know, like, let's play the B above middle C. Not only would you get all kinds of different timbre from different instruments, but you would also get um, the way that that letter is articulated based on various traditions. So B.B. King is not going to play that B. He's going to play a B flat and stretch it up to a B. You know, there are all kinds of ways in which the... um, the, the functional or the apparently accurate and the expressive um, come together. So going to your question, um, yeah. so as I started doing this first exhibition, um, I, as a writer you know I've written lots and lots of stuff and lots of books and things. When I what I always do when I get into a new area or a new subject, I start keeping a journal and I started, Not only researching the scripts, but also kind of being aware of my own reactions, um, such as why was this particular script so difficult to carve? So, for example, one of the first scripts that I worked on um, is a script that was invented by um, a a young Methodist minister in Canada, originally... Um, for Ojibwe and Cree, later it was used and adapted for um, Inuktitut, uh, which is the Inuit language. And he adapted, um, he he sort of created a version of shorthand. And for reasons that have a lot to do with probably him and his sense of what was right and proper, the letters um, are really quite crisp. So one of the letters, for example, um, they're actually syllables. I guess I should call them characters rather than letters. But one of them, um, for example, looks like an L and one looks like a U. And so when you look at those, they look right to us because they are familiar from, uh, from, from Latin, you know, from the, from the Roman, um, letter forms. And as a result, they have certain properties, such as right angles, symmetry, parallelism, um, you know, perfect circles, perfect curves. Now, the interesting thing about that is that, and I sometimes do this when I'm, I'm giving talks, those shapes are impossible to execute without tools. You can draw a capital E on the blackboard but you don't have the three horizontals all parallel or equally spaced, and you don't have the vertical at exactly at ninety degrees. You can't do those without make without using tools. And the reason why those letters look so right to us in, in Western culture is because they were devised. For non-everyday purposes. They were devised for monuments and tombs, especially tombs of emperors who were by definition gods, by the way. So what you get is the kind of writing that is suitable for a god. But beyond that, the kind of writing that is suitable for a god who is also the head of a military empire. And so those qualities are the qualities of stability and permanence and organization. They are, we think of them as being, yeah, this is how letters ought to be. But you go to Bali and you look at Balinese, there are no bloody right angles anywhere. There is no particular interest in symmetry or parallelism. And you start kind of going, wait a second, does that mean that the way we shape letters is actually influenced by the way we think about who we ought to be in the world and that starts getting really interesting
0: yeah i have to say that sort of uh, that just gave me goosebumps i was i was sort of anticipating all the things you were going to say as you were saying them and yeah i it's hard to quantify and measure and talk about these things in a very scientific way but i think there's some i think your 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 intuition and analyses are 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 on i think there is something about things like art writing systems etc that they don't just come out of the, the sky perfectly formed and, and and are handed to cultures cultures create them and cultures create things that are in line with their their values and sense of identity etc can i say something exactly in response to what you just said
1: Absolutely. One of the other things that I discovered was that there are a number of cultures who believe exactly that. They believe that writing is such a phenomenally valuable and subtle and important thing that it could not have been created by humans. And it must have been handed out of the sky, so to speak, by a a divine figure. And in fact, there are, there are many places where there are actual kind of elements of mythology that explain how writing came to that particular people. Um, there are other mythologies that talk about how they were a particular people was given writing by a, a deity, and then it was lost. Um, so this relationship is so profound It's actually built into the way in which we tell the story of our culture. So, Moses going up onto the mountain at his time of despair because um, his followers were not following him and they were certainly not following what God wanted them to do. And what happens? He comes back with writing, he comes back with the law written by God, like, you know, God's handwriting. And, you know, that's a a wonderful piece of cultural mythology there, because that establishes law and order. It establishes monotheism. It establishes the beginning of civilization as we know it, because before that, they were a semi-nomadic rabble wandering here and there fighting amongst themselves. So right there in the Bible, without us even noticing it, there is this kind of... um, mythology of the origins of writing
0: well my my secular minded self stands corrected <laughs> <laughs> i won't argue with that <laughs> um yeah th- thanks for sharing that um i yeah i, I think i think there's uh, something very like you said profound and legitimate about cultures relating to their scripts in this way um And you know what, maybe something we should just touch upon is uh, your project is called The Endangered Alphabets Project, but I assume that most of, or perhaps not most, but many of the scripts that you're working with are in fact not alphabets in the technical sense. So could you uh, define for listeners who might not know, uh, what is an alphabet, strictly speaking, and what are some of the other kinds of scripts that you're working with?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's... It's a phrase that I came up with 10 years ago that sounded really catchy and it has been really catchy, but it's really inaccurate. Um, It's so inaccurate, in fact, that uh, right now I am uh, writing a print edition of my Atlas of Endangered Alphabets, which is due out in 2021. And in the introduction, um, right there on page one, there are these two sidebars and the heading of one of them goes, dot, 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 endangered, dot, dot, dot. And the, side, the sidebar on the other side goes, dot, 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 alphabets, dot, dot, dot. So, um, because both words uh, really need to be more clearly defined. Um, a lot of the scripts I work with are actually emerging. They're endangered in the sense that, like, a you know, a young fledgling bird is endangered because there are so many things that could go wrong. Um, And that, in fact, new writing systems, which are being created on a regular basis, face enormous opposition from existing interests. Um, But yes, an alphabet technically um, is a writing system in which there is uh, one and only one symbol, which we call a letter, for one and only one sound. And this is seen and has been seen for uh, over a hundred years as being the pinnacle of um, writing. Um, Which is a huge issue in itself, because the, the reason why the alphabet is seen as being the pinnacle of writing is because that's what was used by the people who were in power at the time. It was an invention of the first linguist and anthropologist in America and England in the 19th century, which essentially went, if this is how we write, it must be the best of all possible systems. Now, Chinese does not use an alphabet. Many of the cultures in Southeast Asia, for example, use um, um, syllabaries or other forms. And in fact, the Latin alphabet is not a true alphabet because you actually have to combine letters to make individual sounds. It's It's not the wonderful pinnacle that we think it is. It's just that at a crucial time in history, the Latin alphabet had more lawyers, guns, and money than anybody else.
0: Well, you know, that's a perfect segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is what are some of the causes for a script's endangerment? And then the sub-question within that is how closely related is the endangerment slash death of a script, um, how closely related are those things to the endangerment and death of the actual spoken language?
1: Um, If I could add one more, um, that it would be, and the the endangerment or death of the culture itself, because the three are really intimately connected. Um, So um, I have this saying, which is that endangered alphabets are the remnants of lost kingdoms. Um, And I'll give you an example. So um, until the 19th century, uh, there was a kingdom in, um, what we would now call central Vietnam called Champa, C-H-A-M-P-A, um, inhabited by the Cham people, um, just a wonderful, remarkable people in, in many, many ways. And they had their own writing system, which they were extraordinarily proud of. And I'll give you two examples of, of how proud they were of their writing system. Um, one, the, the Cham people who still write in Cham today write in a form of Cham that is actually based on the inscriptions in stone on the last major temple monument that was constructed before their kingdom was overrun. So it's like, whoa. That's got roots right there. Second thing is that in Cham culture, if a person dies, not being able to read and write, the the spiritual importance of the script and and the ability to read and write is seen as being so strong that the priest will actually sit beside the body in the period between death and cremation and teach the dead person their letters. And then they're prepared to go on into the afterlife. So we have this really strong connection between the Cham people and their their script. Um, The Cham uh, kingdom gets nibbled away at from both north and south. And eventually in um, the mid 19th century, the king of Vietnam um, overruns, um, the Cham people. And when, um, when one culture dominates another, there's always the danger of kickback and the dominant culture really wants to reduce that threat by any means possible. And, um, the principal method is by getting the people to lose their sense of identity and difference. And so, um, the uh, Muslim chams were forced to eat pork, and the Hindu chams were forced to eat beef, and all kinds of um, punishments and indignities and tortures were forced on them to get them to renounce their sense of who they were, their sense of identity and difference. And that is a, a sort of a very vivid and extreme example, but in point of fact, this happens all over the world, all the time, in less obvious ways. Um, So, for example, in the early 20th century, um, in schools in Wales, um, if a child, a Welsh child, spoke Welsh in class, then the teacher would hang around that child's neck a a, a piece of wood, like a a plaque or an insignia, which was called the Welsh knot. And it was a punishment, a shaming punishment, um, to make the, um, the kid ashamed of not only speaking Welsh, but of being Welsh, of being different from being English. And I posted some stuff about this online and discovered that this happens everywhere. I knew it had happened with the Abenaki, who are the, the, the um, aboriginal um, inhabitants of the area of northern New England where I live. But I discovered it happens in Brittany. It happens in you know, subcultures all over the place. So um, the, uh, the process of cultural erasure is often disguised as cultural assimilation, the whole melting pot thing. But it's the power is always on one side. If you want to get ahead, you better be like us. And so sometimes the forces are um, economic. You know, if you want to get a job in the new economy, you've got to be able to speak the colonial language. Sometimes they are psychological, like the shaming business. Um, Sometimes they're literally at the, at the, um, the, the muzzle of a gun.
0: And how long from the time when a language slash writing system slash cult- culture, um, how long from the time it first comes under threat, does it take for it to actually go extinct and become unintelligible to the culture that um, produced it? Do you, is there some metric for this?
1: Interestingly enough, it depends on the topography. Yeah, You weren't expecting that one. Um, so, no <laughs> so if um let's say the 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 nazis had invaded the uk then they don't, they have no need or um, reason to actually inhabit every square inch of the uk they want all of the um the principal communication centers they want the banks they want the airfields you know all this kind of stuff and Um, in, um, Southeast Asia, Southern China, this area called Zomia, there's this whole upland region, which is the opposite of that. It is forested. It is mountainous. It's not economically productive. It's not near the main travel routes. It's not near the main rivers. Nobody really cares. And so Zomia over the centuries has actually become a sort of, um, a region of refuge for, for a variety of cultures. So um, the same is true in, say, Northwest Africa, where the, uh, the Amazir people, um, the ones who are living furthest out in the desert, um, say the Tuareg, for example, um, the colonizing forces, um, the Romans, then the Arabs, then the French, it's like, it's too much work to go out into the desert. We're just going to leave them out there. Um, Same is true um, when in Canada, for example, the further north you go, the more likely the indigenous language is still to be spoken because um, the economic interests, the political and military interests don't have a good reason to go there. So typically, um, languages and writing systems survive longest in jungles, um, in the mountains, in the desert. Um, in the frozen, you know, north or presumably south. It's the areas which um, are um, politically scattered and economically insignificant to the oppressor. And under those circumstances, they may they may survive for centuries. I mean, centuries.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, um, which makes me wonder. So outside of uh, topography and outside of, you know, modern so-called progressive initiatives from cultures and people of privilege, like, you know, ourselves. uh, What are some of the organic ways that a culture might go about preserving its own language um, when, you know, that culture is under duress very directly?
1: Um, Yes. So um, there's a, a very interesting illustration of this among the Abenaki people, Um, in uh, Vermont, and to a lesser degree um, New Hampshire and New York, um, and to a a considerable degree in in southern Quebec. So the Abenaki were um, really a sort of a a loose um, confederation of of peoples who suffered terribly um, from the various um, plagues and wars of the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, and um, sort of banded together um, to to try and survive. But they they suffered in particular in Vermont because of the eugenics movement. So at the beginning of the study of genetics, you also had this sort of um, interventionist um, movement, which said, huh, we don't want our children, we don't want our society to be polluted by um, families who are genetically inferior. So why don't we just sterilize um, people who are clearly feeble-minded or um, criminal, you know, because th- crime is thought to run in families. And um, at least at least 3,000 Abenaki women were forcibly sterilized. And what that meant was that the Abenaki in general... Uh, went into hiding. You know, they would deny they were Abnaki. There are people today who deny their Abnaki um, because uh, the the threat was so massive and so potent. So, in the last, um, let's say, twenty five years in particular, there's been um, sort of a revival movement. But the question of how do you revive a language is actually less important than how do you revive a culture. And in Vermont, there are four um, Abenaki tribes. And uh, one of them is pretty numerous. And um, they have uh, a couple of people who have uh, made considerable efforts to learn the Abenaki language or relearn the Abenaki language actually um, from uh, the uh, folks up in, in Quebec. Uh, And so that particular uh, group, um, they are so far along that actually um, one of them has been offering a course in Western Abenaki at Middlebury College over the last uh, few months. So there you have a lot of investment in language revival. So one of the other tribes, um, they really don't have anybody anymore who knows the language particularly well, certainly not well enough to teach it. And so what they're doing is they're preserving heirloom seeds and um, they're cultivating traditional um, Abnaki fruits and vegetables and and trees um, as a way of um, sort of establishing the fact that they were here first, which of course they were, um, but also the fact that they are committed to this ground, this region, this soil. Um, there's another group, which is smaller still, that works on reenactments. So there are, um, there are a number of ways in which um, the act of revitalization can take place. And it doesn't necessarily, it's not a criticism <laughs> or a weakness if it doesn't focus specifically on language. Um, Now, obviously, there are a lot of places around the world where they are working on language revitalization. And this is really happening at every possible scale. So in the Philippines, there is a bill right now which would preserve, protect and promote the traditional writing systems of the Philippines. Um, And so you've actually got the government, you know, kind of getting involved. In Morocco, you have... um, uh, and um, a branch of a government um, or I guess a, an office called IRCAN, which is working on um, studying and teaching and publishing and preparing teaching materials in the Amazigh languages in the Tifinagh script. But then I know places where these efforts of revitalization are literally a, a Facebook group or even a single um, continuing Facebook chat between one person who is so committed to it, that he, and it almost always is a he, is, um, is kind of studying and teaching, and there may be three, four, a couple of dozen people who are getting on online and, and learning it. Um, so it's, um, it's happening in every possible um, means, And it's happening all over the world. This is the big change that has happened since I started the Endangered Alphabets project. And that is that, um, there is, um, a groundswell of, um, belief in the importance of language in its role in self-determination, um, among minority and indigenous people all over the world. And it's incredibly hard, but it's also incredibly exciting.
0: Yeah, perhaps we can add uh, language uh, preservation and revival to the short list of things that social media is good for.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, I could not do the things that I do were it not for the internet. And yet the internet, like so many large global forces has its built-in biases. I mean, all coding takes place in the Latin alphabet. So at the core of the the, the way the internet works, you've got that Latin alphabet built in.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's another two-hour long conversation for us to to go down a rabbit (laughs) hole of how the internet (laughs) is biased in favor of uh, the the languages and writing systems of dominant cultures, but we'll save that for another time. Um, I think we should spend the remainder of our time together talking about your Kickstarter campaign around saving the Mongolian script. So you've developed a board game called Ulu Legends of the Nomads, which looks really really awesome. And I want you to tell us all about the game, its title, and the premise. But first why this initiative around the Mongolian script and why now? Right.
1: So, um, as many people know, um, the Mongols are one of the world's, um, great cultures. Um, 800 years ago, they had a the largest contiguous land empire the world has ever known. Um, and, um, uh, in a way that has played against them in in Western eyes, because the word Mongol is often still associated with um, fierceness and fighting and and, and brutality, um, and so um, we are we are predisposed not to particularly uh, care about what what is happening in in Central Asia there. So the Mongols the uh, the Mongol Empire over, over the centuries um, sort of shrank down to what I now call the Mongol lands, which really are um, the country of Mongolia, which is this landlocked country between Russia and China. Um, some areas in, in Russia, in, in southern Siberia, where you have a, a, a substantial Mongol um, population, and then this area called Inner Mongolia, which the Chinese call the autonomous province of Inner Mongolia, and some Mongolians call Southern Mongolia to emphasize that it's, it's part of this sort of core lands. So um, before, um, before we get onto what is happening right now, let's back up a little bit to the Second World War when um, the, uh, the country of Mongolia, uh, became a, a sort of a vassal nation to the Soviet Union. And so the Mongolian script, which is this extraordinary vertical script, which is inherently calligraphic, um, the way it's written um, actually is, is adapted to the, the flourish of the human wrist. It's very interesting. So that script was banned and instead um, Cyrillic was used. So right in the country of Mongolia, people have not written in the Mongolian script for, what is that, three generations now. And um, just recently, the the government of Mongolia said, right, we're gonna reintroduce our traditional script, which is gonna be hard because um, almost nobody uses it um, from birth on a regular basis. So that's one set of challenges. And I was really interested in Mongolia just on that basis and the fact that Mongolian calligraphy is so extraordinary until just about three months ago, the Chinese government announced that um, schools in Inner Mongolia would start teaching um, in Chinese to start with, just certain classes, but they are key classes. They're ones that have to do with things like history and and ethics and politics. So it's very clearly an effort to, um, uh, as I was saying earlier, to reduce the Mongols' sense that they are a separate, independent um, people. This was illustrated extremely vividly in an incident that happened a couple of months ago in France where a museum was about to open a Genghis Khan um, exhibition. And I'm assuming that some of the funding was coming from the Chinese government because they said to the museum, um, you may not use the following words, Mongol Empire and, wait for it, Genghis Khan. So... And this is because Genghis Khan overran China and China doesn't want this history of uh, the Mongols having beaten them to be, um, you know, to be passed on any longer, to exist any longer. Um, And um, the the Mongols in Inner Mongolia responded in the most extraordinary way. They responded with calligraphy. So you see these banners that they're holding up and they are written um, or painted uh, by hand in their um, traditional vertical script. And so just by looking at these banners, um, you sort of go, this is how central their writing is to their culture. And in fact, there was, um, I, there was this great photograph I saw of a boy, maybe 14, holding up a, um, a, a vertical poster he would painted himself. And it said in Mongolian, a foreign language is a tool. A mother tongue is our soul. And as soon as I saw that, I thought That's, that, that speaks to endangered languages and endangered alphabets everywhere. And so I carved that um, and uh, made a poster out of it um, and started thinking about, you know, what can I do to help? And... Uh, I got in contact with a number of people from Mongolia, a people, number of people who are Mongols, who are uh, ethnic Mongols who are living in Russia or in Poland, and uh, people in Inner Mongolia. And out of all of that um, came the suggestion that you know you're never going to beat the Chinese government, but what you can do is you can create a means. By which Mongolian people in Inner Mongolia can still re- remember and retain and take pride in their own history, their own culture, their own mythology, their own language, even if it is being suppressed. And by the way, this suggestion came from a Polish friend of mine who had lived under communism, so he knew all about, you know, what is it like to to try to survive. Um, with your integrity intact under a totalitarian system. So we developed this game, um, and the, 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 the Mongol history and mythology are so amazing and so rich and so little known in the West because of our prejudice against Mongols um, that it basically created itself. Um, the, uh, the gods, the heroes, the monsters, um, the names and the landscape the sacred yurts of the darkads, for example. I mean, just these these incredibly resonant, powerful um, uh, components. Um, And in the game, um, essentially, I stole the premise from Greek mythology, which is, you know, in Greek mythology, the gods are always fighting each other. But the way that they actually play out their arguments is through humans, you know, on the human chessboard. What I discovered was that when Genghis Khan had sort of established this vast empire, and especially as he was approaching the end of his life and he was starting to hand it over to his children, there was this question, who do we want to be? Right now, we've done the thing. We have made the Greater Mongolia. But what is Greater Mongolia? What, what do we want to be as a people? What do we want to do with this empire? And I think that in, uh, and, and in fact, there was uh, there were some who said, oh, it should be a military empire, we sh- or we should create cities like they do in the West. And there are others who go, no, we are a nomadic people. We should stick to our nomadic roots. And I thought, there's the game, right? The game is for the soul. It's for the Mongol soul. And so each of the gods has a different sense of what the Mongol lands should be and what, and who the Mongols should be and what their identity should be. And they fight it out by um, um, sort of having favorites or champions on earth, as the Greek gods did. And um, those, each of those champions is trying to work to establish a different kind of Mongolia um, for, for the future. And they do it by um, gathering um, assets. In other words, um, elements of Mongolian culture that they would need in order to be able to establish, for example, um, an empire of learning or a spiritual empire or an empire of trade and communication, whatever. But at the same time, um, they're also fighting off um, some of the extraordinarily colorful beasts of um, Mongolian mythology like the Mongolian death worm for example or the multi-headed monster the mangus so um so that's the game they and it all comes together at the annual festival of Nadam, which is like a cross between a state fair and the olympics it's 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 huge and it's it's 800 years old you know it is at the heart of uh, Mongol culture. And that's where the showdown, the final showdown takes place.
0: Has anything like this ever been done before, uh, incorporating, I don't know, <laughs> language preservation and, and, and a game such as this, this seems like a very novel, unique and, and amazing concept that you've, that you've pulled off.
1: Um, well, we haven't pulled it off yet. We're busy fundraising to try and pull it off. Um, I am I am just ludicrously ambitious and it just seems like the right thing to do. So I'm gonna try and do it. I have no idea if anyone's done anything like it before. Um, And um, it just seems to me like it's worth doing.
0: Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I really encourage everyone who's listening to this uh, to support Tim's amazing initiative. Um, There are just a few days left to contribute um from the time that we're recording this so uh don't sleep on it i know i'll be contributing my share uh probably right after we finish this call um so tim i think we can we can wrap up here but before we go can you just let all the listeners know all the places where they can find your work relevant to endangered scripts endangered languages etc
1: yeah so um I have uh, two websites that are sort of sister websites. There's endangeredalphabets, all one word, .com, which basically gives the information about what we're doing. It has a gallery of carvings that I've done, and it has our blog. Then we have endangeredalphabets.net, which is um, something that I created a year and a half ago. It's the Atlas of Endangered alphabets. So you go to it, and there is there is your globe. It's like a Google, Google map globe. And you can click on places, uh, pins around the world, and you can find out about all of these different scripts. And then um, I post about our daily activities um, on uh, Facebook and on Twitter. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Endangered Alpha, all one word. And the Kickstarter is... The the full name is kickstarter.com slash project slash endangered Atlas slash Ulus hyphen a game to save a culture, which is a real mouthful. But I dare say if you go to Kickstarter and you simply type in Ulus,
0: U-L-U-S, you would probably be okay. Great. Well, Tim, thanks again for taking the time to chat with me here today. This was a fascinating conversation, and I wish you all the best with this okay i hope you enjoyed that conversation but don't leave yet i have an announcement if you're a linguistics undergrad or really anyone at all who's interested in getting some experience in podcasting new media in general content marketing research copywriting etc words for granted is looking for an intern there's actually a lot more that I'd like to do under this brand, you know, like curating lists of language resources, word of the day type etymology sent to your inbox, more interview style episodes like this, more episodes, period, but I can't do it alone. So if that person might be you or someone you know, shoot me an email at wordsforgranted at gmail.com and I would love to chat about it. Okay, have a great day. I'll talk to you soon here at Words for Granted.